You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. You like me? Of course I like you. It's a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. What? I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? a world of danger. If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to Excuse me, pardon me. Where courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. Oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm, I'm not a turkey. Big no, buzzer, where's our nigga? Discover the secret of Nim. And rediscover the child in us all. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again, S. El Goro. I'll be right with you, Mike. I'm just all tangled up in the string. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. This week we are discussing the 1982 film from director Don Bluth, The Secret of Nim, based on the book by Richard C. O'Brien. This is an animated tale of Mrs. Frisbee. Frisbee, right? No, Brisby. It's Brisby in this version. The widow with several children, one of whom is very sick and cannot be moved. This is a problem as the Frisbee-Brisby family needs to move due to the impending plowing of their home. That's the really simplistic summary of this film, which we will proceed to ruin if you haven't seen it yet. So be warned. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw The Secret of Nim, and what did you think? I have all these these extremes when I come on this show. So it's either within the last five years via second run, this middle part where I don't remember or one of the first films I ever saw. So this falls into one of the first films I ever saw at the cinema. And I loved this film at the time. I thought it was so magical and dark as well. Obviously, bits of it were scary. I can definitely see that. Al Gore, how about you? 
I would have seen this when I was around three years old or so during that time when parents would just say, hey, it's a cartoon. It must be appropriate for kids. And while The Secret of Nim definitely isn't on the harder end, it's not like, uh, say, Plague Dogs, which also came out in 1982. It certainly is a shade or two darker than standard Disney fare that was available to me as a child. And as such, it left an indelible impression on me. I saw this at the movie theater when I was, uh, gosh, around fourth grade, I think this was. My folks uh, owned a small business, and there was a movie theater right across the street. So in order to get me out of their hair, they would send me across the street to see movies. And so I saw this one repeatedly at the showboat theater. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. This movie, magical, dark, compelling, and it sticks with me. I mean, this movie has been part of my life since 82, and it's one of those rare animated films that I actually go back and will seek out and rewatch again well, once every like five years or so. But it brings back a lot of good memories and still just, my God, the look of this film is just amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And there's something so quintessentially 1980s about it. And that's not necessarily a knock against it. It's just some of the animation techniques that were utilized by Don Bluth and his production company. They became almost a standard that you can find replete throughout 1980s animation. Yet for some reason, perhaps in the shift towards uh, computer-generated imagery, even within classically animated films, they sort of moved away from some of these techniques, perhaps due to the labor and intensive nature of them, but there's something just so beautifully timeless about some of the sequences within this film. It's definitely as magical as I remembered it, because I haven't seen it for so many years. I think I was about eight, I must have been about seven or eight when I first saw it, and there's definitely something about it. It doesn't look like the Disney films of that period. I just remember when I first saw it, how vivid I thought it was, all the little sparkly bits and just how magical it looked. And it's definitely not lost that. The sparkly bits, as you so eloquently put it, that it just always takes me back watching this. And now watching it again, you know, so many years later, I'm watching it a little bit more critically. I'm reading articles about it and seeing people with really weird complaints about the movie. I'm just like, well, this doesn't add up plot-wise. I'm like, oh, really? Are we going to go there? (laughs) As a kid, you don't think about those sorts of things. You watch it now, and you're just like, huh, the rats have magic. All right. (laughs) See, I'm like Jeremy. I just like sparkly things. Anyway, (laughs) I've never given it that much thought, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) A couple weeks ago, Kat, we talked about Belladonna of Sadness, another animated film. And wow, talk about two really different films on the surface, but then the whole idea of female empowerment is also in this movie, which watching it again now, I'm like, oh, wow, this movie was kind of ahead of its time. Like actually having a widowed woman as the protagonist of this film who needs to take care of her family and she'll go to any lengths in order to do it. And that she's the hero of the story is wow, pretty remarkable. But then at the same time, I'm like, But did she really need to use magic, or is that just a stand-in for, like, her inner character development at that point? But she's the only one who can use that magic, though, because no one else can use the stone, can they? So I think that becomes like a metaphor for her inner strength, which I love. I love that part of it. 
And I think I read somewhere that uh, that was intentional on Blue's part, that they needed a visual representation of that sort of arc, that sort of inner strength within her. And they said, hey, we're, do- we're working in animation. Ma- animation is inherently magic. Let's just throw magic in there. And, you know, Nicodemus, he's got the magic. He can write words with the pen kind of hovering above them. I mean, just that opening sequence of Nicodemus giving this voiceover about Jonathan Frisbee was killed today. It's just like, and by the way, I'm going to fuck up constantly and say Frisbee instead of Brisbee. So please <laughs> forgive fair. me, guys. And, and for the listeners at home, it was Frisbee in the book and it was Brisbee in the movie. So I'm kind of confusing the two. So thanks, Whammo, for wor- ruining that for me. I guess we could just call her Elizabeth Hartman, I guess. Jonathan is such a major character, but we only see him in flashbacks. And he's kind of the also a key. I mean, we talked about how the amulet uh, is a, a, a key he's kind of a key for her to open up a lot of doors. Like things change when she drops his name because he has such a huge reputation. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. The fact that we do know so little about him and yet his presence is throughout the entire film. I mean, it's almost like the character of Timmy that he, we see him in the beginning. We, he he delivers one line of dialogue near the end, but otherwise it's just something that exists in the background to inform the plot or to drive it forward. Now, sadly, we would unfortunately spend way more time with Timmy in the sequel, but I'm sure we'll get to that excretable piece of crap later. I'm never going to forgive you guys for making me sit through that. You were warned. I I distinctly remember warning both of you that you shouldn't watch that film. (laughs) You're trying to take one for the team with us, and we wouldn't listen. Yeah, but then Mike's like, oh, well, we should watch it anyway, so we can talk about it. Worse than I ever imagined. It was an exaggeration. It was actually bad. Yeah, I don't know if I could have taken your word for it had I not witnessed it with mine own eyes. Well, hopefully we will successfully warn people off it now, but uh, I have a feeling there's just – the movie f- world is filled with people that just want to see, and unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't end well. Timmy is the motivating factor for this, as well as that we're about at harvest time, so she needs to get Timmy well. Timmy's not in the well, but she needs to get him well. And then she also needs to worry about her house and either moving her house or moving to a new house because it's just about time for the plow to happen. So she's got these two ticking clocks kind of going on that she really needs to worry about. And then that puts her in motion for the rest of this movie. And then it is basically like, okay, I'm going to visit Mr. Ages and I'm going to try to get some medicine. I'm going to find out some advice. I'm going to talk with Andy Shrew. And it's just like, everybody is a part of this moving the story ahead, trying to get her to, you know, her eventual goal. And I like that she's this investigator type of character who's going through all these things. She's taking that hero's journey But then we also have us as the audience going, what the hell's going on here? Like, what is NIM? Like, they mentioned it at one point. That's the National Institute of Mental Health. You know, what is this? How do these rats have electricity? What's going on? But then it's also interesting because we're put into a world of animated animals, which is a very familiar place for us to be. I mean, we just saw the rescuers a few years before this, possibly, but we know we know cartoon mice. We've seen cartoon mice all of our lives. So it's like, okay, we're kind of familiar with this. But then that they actually use this whole idea of, no, we are super smart mice. And now we have to question, well, they're mice and rats. Now we have to question, well, why is that? And what, what happened to these rats and mice? 
And from a narrative standpoint, they do a good thing by refocusing the story to make uh, Mrs. Brisby the central character. Because I don't know if you guys have read the original novel, but there was a greater emphasis upon the rats within the original Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim. But by changing it and actually giving, putting the story on Mrs., uh, in this case, Brisby, and also changing her entire arc so everything com- cycles around her, I think it really helps streamline the narrative and making it more palatable towards the intended audience, which of course was children at this time. Can I just say, the whole moving thing, the whole thing about them having to move is really watership down, though, don't you think? Mm. Oh, sure. And this whole thing about the animals versus the humans and the humans sort of being these figures in the background that are destructive. I mean, Watership Down was another film I saw around that period, which just, that one completely damaged me, though, because it's just so dark and and so sad. But yeah, there's definitely some sort of connection there. And there was the plague dogs around that time as well. Oh, I still have flashbacks of plague dogs. <laughs> Downbeat than this. So they, they, they soften the edges on this one, but it's still quite dark. The fact that she's widowed, the fact that she's, she's looking after these children on her own and the whole backstory about the experimentation, those scenes, even the scenes with the owl, I found really frightening when I was a kid. But frightening in a good way, like compelling. Well, it's interesting that you brought up Watership Down because I also went into this thinking, it's like, okay, this story is very much in, in the tradition of uh, that Richard Adams novel. And then it was surprising to me to look it up in preparation for this show that the novel Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, it actually predates Watership Down by a year. So that uh, Mrs. Frisbee came out in 71 and Watership Down came out in 72. There seemed to be a big thing in, in that period where you had these kind of eco-narratives with the animals. Like when it gets to the 90s, the animals are just these, well, when it gets to Secret of Nim 2, the animals are just these kind of cute figures who exist in their own universe. But you did have a lot of this stuff in the late 70s, early 80s that were very tuned into this sort of ecological message of what are we doing to our planet and we're harming the animals and, you know, these sort of narratives. So it just kind of squeeze into that, although you don't see a lot of the the NIM people until you get to the second one and then you've got that Dr. Valentine. (laughs) And what was it in the 1970s, do you guys think, that sort of led to these sort of eco-narratives? I mean, because, of course, we have Watership Down and we have Mrs. Frisbee, but then you can even look at something like um, Silent Running that also is replete with that kind of messaging. What was it in the 70s that kind of formed the basis for these sorts of stories? I think people were just becoming more aware at that point. We were starting to hear about global warming, weren't we? People were becoming more conscious of what we were doing to the environment. I don't know. It just seemed to be a shift in consciousness that then got dumbed down by the 90s. That Hmm. message sort of lost. But there was like Silent Running was another one. I saw that as a kid. All I knew was the robots. Like I had to run up to my room when it finished and just was sobbing. Mm. final mm. shot of the film and I didn't really understand much apart from the robots and I saw it as an adult and I thought Jesus Christ this film is transgressive <laughs> it's just <laughs> really out there it's a brilliant film but yeah you did have a lot even E.T. had a, a kind of similar message as well I mean I don't know if Rachel Carson kicked off the 
ecological uh, narrative that was going on with her book Silent Spring in 1962. But I think that played a part. I mean, if you go back and you look at like photos before the idea of, uh, you know, the, the Iron Jim Cody, Iron Eyes Cody, um, with the uh, crying Indian on the side of the road looking at all the pollution. I mean, that's the kind of world that we grew up in was like, hey, give a hoot, don't pollute kind of thing. But before that, I mean, you can see photos of just like, you know, it's almost as bad as it is today with all of the plastic in the ocean and all these things. But it's like, oh, yeah putting chemicals in the water. I mean, Joni Mitchell's even singing about, leave me spots on my apples, but leave me the birds and the bees. And it's just like, okay, yeah, it's it's everywhere at this point. And I think that helped kick off too. You're talking about silent running. And I think all of like the nature gone wild, like the bees and the spiders and the snakes and you know, the rabbits. The bees, everything. I was like terrified of everything. You also had the nuclear thing going on in the background as well. It was a scary exactly. time to live. There was that guy who wrote that article, a bit of a tangent here, about how he'd seen Heathers at 24. I'm 24 years old and I've just seen Heathers and he was going on about how terrible it was and how, you know, obviously now in the millennium, you know, young people have a lot more things to worry about. And it's like, dude, you didn't grow up in the 80s. If the bees were going to get you or the <laughs> or you were going to get a bomb dropped on you or you were going to get poisoned by the water, you had those public information films it was a terrifying time even the kids cartoons were covering things like death and animal cruelty and all these experimentation like it was a scarier time i think then and i want to say that the book mrs frisbee and the rats of nim it was inspired by uh the whole idea of the uh laboratory tests on animals and there was a series of articles around, I want to say late sixties, possibly that really shed light on what was going on with that. Now that would continue for years and years and years, but at least there was starting to be discussion about that. And then I've read recently that some of that stuff is starting to happen again. So it's like, great. Thanks again. So now we need to have like another uh, round of this kind of stuff, I guess, to uh, tell us how horrible it is to put lipstick on like rabbit eyes and all of these horrible things that they were doing. Yeah, except if you were to do it now, there would be a horde of people on the Internet claiming it was all SJW propaganda. And why can't we go back to the cartoons when we were kids that clearly didn't have a political messaging? Because political messaging in child's entertainment is something that's clearly only a byproduct of the 21st century, right? Right? I don't know. I'm enjoying all the bro talk today. Are we being bros about this? We haven't even talked about how how sexy Mrs. Frisbee is. Oh, God, please no. (laughs) (laughs) I swear this, this film launched an entire generation of furries. Yeah, there was somebody going on about the uh, how the crows are into bondage. I was like, what are you even talking about? And I was like, oh, yeah, they're tied up with string at the end? What? Oh. <laughs> what is your problem? You missed that message when I was eight years old. I missed it now at 47. I, I guess fetishes are formed in our formative years, and maybe I could see how that could affect somebody, but... It's a cartoon crow, guys. Come on. It's Dom DeLuise. And personally, I don't want to imagine Dom DeLuise in a sexual situation. Not even as Captain Chaos. Exactly. I have nothing but love for the man. But imagining him having sex is just, nah, let alone in a bonded situation. I just hear him with that laugh, that. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually one one thing I wanted to mention, because uh, Dom DeLuise at this point. 
or sorry, by the time that I became, uh, you know, uh, aware of his work, he was tied very much into the world of animation because he did a lot, a lot of work in that particular medium. And this was actually one of his earliest uh, voice acting roles. I found one prior to this, which was a English localization of a Swedish cartoon called Peter No Tail. But uh, Secret of Nim was, for all interests and purposes, his big uh, break into animation. But then you look at what he did after. After that, and it's just all of these voice acting credits, and they were all uh, right in the time when I was coming of age. So I've always associated him with his animated roles more so than his live action roles. Yeah, from what I understand, it was kind of that almost like Robin Williams as the genie kind of thing. Like, hey, I can do this, and I can do this, and he would just like riff a bit and go from there. And the guys at Bluth Animation were like, great, yeah, keep it. And I think that's how he got that expanded role because Jeremy the Crow, he's barely in Mrs. Frisbee, but he is all over the place in Secret of Nim. He's great, though. I loved him as a kid. He was like my favorite character. Yeah, now there's like maybe one scene too many of Jeremy where I'm just like, ah, but at least like Mrs. Frisbee knows that he's a pain in the ass. On the topic of the voice acting cast in this, I had no idea just how stacked this film is in terms of talent. Out of fucking raid. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which, it's a, it's a name that would have meant nothing to me as a kid, and now it's Aldo Rays in this movie? Shannon Doherty as well. I was, yeah, I was just gonna say that. Shannon Doherty and Will Wheaton are in this film. I mean, you, you wouldn't recognize their voices because they were very young at this point, but good lord. And then you have Derek Jacoby and John Carradine, uh, the aforementioned Elizabeth Hartman. This, this, uh, voice cast is just incredibly stacked. And speaking of stacked, Elizabeth Hartman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's that bro tendency. Go and bro it alone, you two. I'll just sit it, sit in the background. <laughs> I said nothing. I was talking about Dom DeLuise. <laughs> Elizabeth Hartman is just amazing in here. I love her voice. I love the emotion that she brings to her performance. Really striking. I had no idea that this was her last role. She would end up committing suicide a couple of years later. And it just, it's super heartbreaking because she was so good in this film. Brilliant. There's a sort of frailty to the voice. But also this strength as well, it's just so nuanced. Far more nuance, nuanced than you see in a lot of animated films. There's just a lot of... Um, I remember really responding to the Mrs. Brisby character when I was a kid. Normally her approach that she utilized for her voice acting doesn't always work for me. And it's something I've spoken to in the past. That when you cast somebody in a voice role who is not trained in that particular thing, sometimes you can end up with mixed results, and sometimes you have a tendency towards understatement. And it doesn't always work very well in animation, which almost demands a, a, a showier approach to one's voice. They generally have a lot more dramatic animated voices, a lot more dramatic, aren't they? But, but Mrs. Brisby's voice in this is, I don't know, there's like a vulnerability about it. Yeah, and it's it's funny that it actually ends up working so well because a lot of times, in my opinion, the understated approach in animation just comes off as flat. 
But with her, we do hear that vulnerability and we do hear that undercurrent of strength. And perhaps it's just that wonderful alchemy between the very detailed character animation they were able to do with her and her own qualities as a voice actress. It ends up becoming a very compelling character that manages to be understated without uh, becoming flat. And I wonder how much of that is her. Like when it comes to the character design, I wonder how much they based on her. Because I know when it comes to the owl, there are things that they did where they modeled it directly off of John Carradine. Like the, the way that he walks, he walks with a limp and they took that right from John Carradine's walk because he had really horrific arthritis at this point and had a hard time getting around. And apparently, he did his whole performance in just one shot, and that was it, which is just remarkable to me. Oh, that's that's amazing. I also love the fact that we, we were talking about the disparity between the names of uh, Frisbee versus Brisbee, and apparently they uh, found out they couldn't use the Frisbee name re- relatively late in the production, requiring them to go back and re-record things. But John Carradine wasn't available, so they actually had to re-edit his audio, sampling F or B sounds from previous parts in order to overlay the F sound he was making when he was saying Frisbee. So when he says, Mrs. Jonathan Brisby, that's a result of audio editing, not actual performance. I listened for that so closely because I had read the same story and I was just like, I don't hear it. I could not make out that that was an overdub whatsoever. It was brilliant. Yeah, props to whoever did the audio engineering on that because it is remarkably difficult to do that sort of thing. But they did a great job there. Yeah, I mean, taking out a... A syllable or something is relatively easy, but yeah, to, to get that explosive B, you know, over the, the F sound, yeah, that was really good. I noticed you got a note actually, Mike, about the, the owl not really being much, it adds nothing to the story. What's well, interesting, yeah, because she goes and sees him and he pretty much just tells her, like, move the house to the Lee of the Stone and that's about it. And I was thinking, like, well, does it really... When you're eight years old and he's up on a big screen, that's what he adds to the story. More than that, she kind of uses him as a key as well to say, listen, I talked to the owl and he said this. And then when people hear, oh, Mrs. Brisby went and talked to the owl, that's a, that's a baller move. That's also an entree into things where it's just like, well, I talked to the owl and it's like, what? You talked to the owl? That, whoa, okay. You know, we, you mean business here. You are not just, you know, coming in and trying to use your husband's name as cachet or anything. It's like, you really mean business lady. I can see while some people can make the argument that from a narrative utility standpoint, the owl adds nothing because Nicodemus, who also is patterned very closely off of the owl, they're very similarly animated. He clearly knows the problem she's in. She, he knows the solution to it without her even having to say uh, the whole advice to move the house to the lee of the stone. He just knows. But the importance of the of that particular scene is to show her – Facing the unknown, showing the in- the inherent courage within her. It's that whole Joseph Campbell crossing of the threshold moment. We get that when she goes into the lair of the Great Owl. Plus, it's just a beautifully animated sequence, and I wouldn't lose it for the world. Yeah, that whole idea of the cave and what the cave represents, you know, and just that 
we see the literal cave as well in something like Empire Strikes Back, where it's just like, okay, you have to enter that cave. So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Joseph Campbell because I kept thinking of him as I was watching her hero's journey throughout this. And as soon as she went into that, and I know it's not a literal cave, but it pretty much is that, that place that he's in in the tree, where it's just like, wow, okay, she's going in there, she's doing this, and we've got that great fake out with the spider where she, we think that she's going to get attacked by the spider that great sound effect of his uh foot or claw i guess it would be talon coming down on the spider and squishing it i mean just the sound work itself we talked about the the brisby versus frisbee but the other the sound effects and stuff just uh, such a terrific job and one thing uh, that struck me as I was watching this, I was trying to p- unpack why this film would have unsettled me as a child. And I think one thing that does contribute to that is that while it does have a t- fantastic score with some re- very stirring mo- uh, movements from Jerry Goldsmith, there are certain passages of this film that are unaccompanied by music. And it's a small thing, but when you're a child, if you look back at the majority of children's animation, whether you go back to old Tom and Jerry cartoons or Looney Tunes or anything like that, they're almost wall-to-wall filled with sound. And that helps give a child a... An emotional cue, you know, if the, if the music is light, we feel, we feel at ease. If the move, if the music is ominous, we, we're guided towards that feeling. If you remove the score, for a young child, it's up to them to determine what it's going, what it is meant to be. And for somebody who's just coming to terms with what emotions are and how, how the proper way to think and feel, that can be a rather relatively unsettling uh, prospect. And I think that works to the benefit of this film. I didn't really notice that. It's a really interesting observation. You're right, hmm. though. And obviously, that's where they went wrong in part two. Fucking <laughs> like song for everything. Whilst there is a song in Secret of Nim, none of the cast are actually singing it. You know, it's it's in the background. It's non-diegetic or what have you. I'm, I'm not up on my film terms, but... Uh... She doesn't sing that to Timmy? But we don't see her mouth moving, so I guess she's, she's not singing it. Okay, so she's like think singing it. Yeah, and I also appreciate that the character design on the first rat that she meets, like that rat looks so different than any of the others. So it's like we're seeing it through her POV because after that we'll see like, uh, uh, Justin and some of these other rats where it's like, okay, they look much more anthropomorphic, but that first rat that we see, Brutus, I think his name is, and he's got that electrified spear and he's, pretty much just trying to kill her and he has that at that point he has no eyes he just it's like little silver globes instead of where his eyes are he's super scary it is really horrifying i was trying to think back to when i was a kid i remember i was really enthralled with the film even the darker parts but i was just glued to my seat in those parts there's something really sinister about those, just the way that rat is with the eyes, and it was just something really, and the owl as well. And that's actually something that was a unique contribution to the film that was pointed out by a friend of mine when I commented that I was coming on the show to discuss this, that the whole medieval weaponry of the rats, that wasn't present within the original novel. That was something that was added to the film. But it's just so evocative, the idea that they have this pseudo-medieval society, that they will have a conflict resolved with a sword fight at the end. I I absolutely love that. It gets, like, really all this power struggle and everything 
it just completely changes track to have like when you've got this conflict between the rats and you know not wanting to move and trying to bump off Nicodemus and it gets very Shakespearean and then they've got all these weapons going on and stuff it's great and it also fits into that environmental message that we were talking about. The idea that there is one faction that wants to have a sustainable society, one where they're not required to steal the resources they need in order to survive, and then the others that are quite content to do that, that believe that they are entitled to have access to these sorts of things and that they can take on the world and fight and fight uh, the humans of all things. They're leading the, the entire colony to devastation because because they don't believe in the need to create a sustainable world. Which is great. I didn't, as an eight-year-old, I didn't note that message. But when sure. I it back, I was like, this is actually really kind of still applicable now when you look at how, how we are, this fact that they don't want to be living off the humans. And like you said, they're trying to create this sustainable community. It's just so far out <laughs> for a kid's cartoon. Now, if only we can get our politicians to resolve their conflicts with a sword fight. We need to send them to NIM. Yeah, I think uh, getting injected with something that raises intelligence, that wouldn't be too bad. I want to talk about Jenner for a few minutes, because Jenner is just talked about in Mrs. Frisbee, the book, and he's not seen. He had a break with Nicodemus and this whole idea of you know the sustainable versus the non-sustainable. But he's not really made out to be a villain, but he is a great villain when it comes to the movie. And he, yeah, they just pretty much, I don't want to say conjured him up because like I said, he was there, but he was there in such a different capacity and he was definitely not present going head to get head to head against, you know, Justin and, and, uh, kind of chewing the scenery, but in a great way. I really like this character. His expanded role certainly reflects, uh, well, Bluth's experience being uh, a Disney animator, because one thing that Disney can be called upon for is the great villain characters and the ne- the narrative necessity for that villain. You know, the children want the, to have a bad guy. The externalization of all of all the struggles that the people are going towards, and the fact that he's bo- voiced by Paul Shinar, the goddamn uh, Sosa from Scarface, that just makes it even better. He is great. I mean, you're right. Even in Watership Down, they've got that other Warren, haven't they? Where they're like the the humans in that are very much in the background as well. As a sort of a more subtextual villain, they're not strong enough for a kid to identify with. Because when you're six or seven or eight, you want the sword fight and you want the bad guy and you want all that in with your ecological messages. When we talk about the sort of abstract threat that the humans represent, that initially they were a very abstract um, menace, even down to how they were animated. The first time we see uh, Farmer Fitzgibbons, he is uh, on on his tractor and he's rotoscoped, which is a de- definitely a different animation style than the rest of the characters. What's curious to me is that they didn't continue with that technique later on. And then later when we see the humans, they're more traditionally animated. And I almost wonder if they had uh, avoided that tendency, if they hadn't shown us clearly the people, or if we had seen them, they were this sort of rotoscoped animated figure, that if perhaps it would have been a stronger artistic statement on behalf of the film. I was just trying to think of the whole idea of who Jeremy reminds me of, because, you know, Kat, I think you said that this uh, film gets almost into like a Shakespeare 
territory here. He reminded me a little bit of Koba from the uh, New Planet of the Apes film where they're trying to start their new society, but he is so damaged by what the humans had done to him that he will do anything to ruin everything, basically just to get back at the humans. Now, Jeremy isn't necessarily exactly like that, but he is that bad seed that pretty much just what's his line, like, I take what I want when I want. So he doesn't care about any of this idea of I'm going to be a, a good player amongst the team. I am the the center of the world, basically. Yeah, it was Jenner, right? Jenner. Sorry, <laughs> who did I say? Jeremy. Which all of a sudden that I wanted really wanted to see Dom DeLuise play a villain. <laughs> well, I do have to complain that we got Justin, Jeremy, and Jenner, and it's just like, come on, guys, can we think of some different names? Maybe a different letter. And Jonathan. And Jonathan. Oh, a lot of J's. That must have some meaning. There must be some meaning for that. Unless they just had a book open of names and they were like, split to a page. Okay, Jonathan, Jeremy, Justin, Jenna. Nicodemus, that one rolls off the tongue. Who, know, who knows, maybe Robert C. Uh, Robert C. O'Brien just had uh, four sons and they went with the alliterative names thing. Well, at least he did better than George Foreman and just named all the characters George. It'd be like Wuthering Heights all over again. Though, I, I actually, one thing I, I wanted to call back to when we were talking about the quality of the animation and we were talking about that... Um, the sparkly animation. I love, I love how that, that, how that uh, particular technique was utilized back in the day, where it was them using a light box. So they put the cell over it. They would, uh, carve off little bits of it and of the cell with a, with a knife. So the light behind would shine through the cell in these parts to give you that, that light up thing. I think it was similar to the technique they utilized in Tron to pull off that. Um, I, I, I adore how that looks. And as I said, it's a, it's a very labor-intensive process, and you can understand why it kind of fell out of favor as a digital techniques were able to kind of approximate that look. But there's just something so beautiful when it was realized back in the 1980s, in particular in The Secret of Nim. I'm not sure if they they originated that particular technique, but that was certainly one of the best exemplars of it. And we saw various people utilize it throughout the rest of the 1980s, whether it be in America or Japan. It looks incredible. I remember thinking before I went back into it, I remember this film being so sparkly and wondering if that was just something that was in my imagination and it would look shit now. No, it doesn't. It looks, I mean, I was, I didn't read into the technique, obviously. It makes sense now having it explained but looking at it it was just like wow this is really something else when you guys watched the movie did you watch this on a restored copy on blu-ray or anything because i watched this streaming on amazon prime and there were certainly parts where it looked like the cells were a bit dirty i don't know if they've ever done a proper restoration on this film no i didn't see a blu-ray version just dvd Okay. I did watch it on Blu-ray. There was a German release of it on Blu-ray that I got through Diabolic DVD. Uh, it's a region B, but luckily my player supports that. And it's got audio commentary. It's got a little making of documentary on there. There's some trailers, those kind of things. Uh, but yeah, the, the audio commentary is fascinating and especially because they're watching a version that isn't as good as the version that was on the Blu-ray. So oh. they kept saying like, oh yeah, well this, this looks really bad here, but it'll be cleaned up for the, for the DVD release. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
Fair they're, enough. They're talking about, you know, how red bleeds out and stuff and how they didn't want to use red a lot because of, you know, NTSC and video cassettes and stuff. And then when it came to the DVD, they're just like, oh, yeah, no, this should be all good to go. And did you fix that cape? You notice how her cape changes color? And they're just like, this is really picking it apart because, of course, this is Gary Goldman and, and Don Bluth talking about this. So just all of that and all the inside baseball kind of stuff that they're talking about and like, they're talking about the uh, the lamp that lowers them down, I think, inside of the rat's nest. And that that was just a lamp that um, uh, Bluth found in the garbage and cleaned up and then, like, took all these photographs of it, made all these references of it. And now it's, like, in a museum in France. And he's just like, oh, that, that cute little lamp made this whole journey from a, from a garbage pile to a museum. <laughs> <laughs> I have to track down that release because, uh, I, as I mentioned, I'm something of an animation geek, so the opportunity to hear Don Bluth speak to that would be very fascinating to me. I actually got two accidentally, so I will send you one of those. Oh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. I will not send you my DVD copy of Secret of Nim 2, though, even though I know how badly you want it. <laughs> I think we still have a VHS copy of it floating around my parents' house. Oh, you got to upgrade because that just looks oh, so beautiful on DVD. Oh, the resolution. I feel like a good parent because this it was totally new to me, and obviously when it came out, my kids were younger, and so we were into all the animated films, and that was one that passed us by, thankfully. Quite <laughs> smug about that that I hadn't subjected them to that, although it wouldn't have rolled with them. How it came to me is that my brother was born 10 years after me. So when he was coming up, we still had all of the animated films from when my sister and I were children. And I took a certain kind of glee of showing my very younger brother, who was probably about three years old, you know, the films that I liked when I was a kid. So, you know, I would show him a lot of these darker animated films from the 1980s, uh, stuff like The Secret of Nim, stuff like Land Before Time, stuff like American Tale. And two, a film, which again, if you go back and look at those original ones, they were very dark. They were very meticulously animated, but they were still kid friendly. What followed with all of those were a series of direct to video sequels with, though I think, uh, the first, uh, sequel to American Tale may have had a theatrical release. Five goes west. Yes, I, it did. That, that did get a theatrical. And so the quality was higher on that. But the, so many of these animated films from the 1980s, they just kind of went crazy with these direct video sequels on them and they really lost a lot of the artistry that so typified these original films they became just kind of disposable things and in the sad case of a secret of nim and american tale don bluth films they became the same kind of disposable stuff that led him to leave Disney in the first place and aspire to something more, which is why it, it, it is somewhat painful to me because you, if you know the aspirations behind Don Bluth, if you know what he wanted to accomplish to see his intellectual property morph into the very thing that he wanted to avoid, it, it's very sad. I wouldn't say morphed. I'd say desecrated. There, we'll go with that. <laughs> Whenever it comes to any of those direct-to-video sequels, I can always hear, like, Mark Elliott, the voice of Disney trailers, just like, The Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. The circle of life continues in an all-new sequel, only on video, October 27th. He always made it sound so delightful that we were getting this shit on VHS. Oh, God. <laughs> well, they have to, have to move the product. In the end of the day, everything becomes Disney.
I think you said before that the character design on Nicodemus is very similar to the owl, which was very intentional. And I love that both of them have that, those glowing eyes, which just make them look again. So I can't say inhuman because they're not human, more otherworldly. And I think that that really fits with Nicodemus and the connection to magic. And that so much of this movie, when we think about it, is actually him. You know, I talked about how he's the, the voiceover at the beginning, but there are a couple times where we go to, and Kata reminded me of American Tiger, where we will see him looking through a glass and seeing things that are happening on screen. So he's like this observer slash narrator through a lot of the film as well, at least at this beginning part until we actually join up with him in the narrative. I like the way you can just summon past events on a... You know, he can be like, look at this, and he can just conjure up these things. I was like, that's a way to get the story moving and get some backstory in. And it makes me wonder if that was always intended. I mean, because the role he plays at times with his narration and the cutting back to him is as the exposition dump. And he also provides, you know, the background for Nim and all of these things. So I wonder if... It was a decision late in the process to add him in as a narrator to perhaps streamline the story for the children. It could be. I mean, though he does serve in that narrator context when it comes to the book, and I was just amazed going through and reading the book how much of it is the backstory. Like, we start off with Mrs. Frisbee and go through her story, and then once she meets Nicodemus, I mean, he's got such a huge chunk of the book just telling all of the the backstory of Nim to the point where they actually take breaks and <laughs> go into other things. It's like, okay, uh, Mr. Aegis and Justice, they're going to go out and uh, get the the uh, the stuff to make Dragon go to sleep. Uh, in the meantime, Nicodemus is going to tell you a little bit more about this whole story. Now he's going to tell you about the Tinkerer. Now he's going to tell you about this. Now he's gonna, And it's just like, wow, this so much of this is all Nicodemus telling these stories stories of what happened at NIM and the long history. And it's interesting because it actually filled in a couple gaps that I always had wondered about, like, well, how did they get to this place and how did this happen? And he actually gave me all that information. So thank you, Nicodemus. I do like this whole idea, too, of how they don't grow old in that Jonathan kept a lot of this stuff from his wife because he was afraid that she was going to grow old and died, die while he still was young. And I was totally thinking of the Highlander at that point. Such a sad move as well, wasn't it? It's just like, you know, he's dead anyway, but they just add that in. There was so much, I mean, a lot of the, the sad moments aren't sentimental. They come from these these little things that they add in are really tragic. I mean, the thought that they would have, they were obviously very much in love and then she would have gone out and he would have just been left. And, you know, it's just introduced in this little sentence that's thrown in there. I love that, that fact. I love the fact it's not overly sentimental as well, talking to Disney. That's one of the things that it felt like Bluth had enough faith in his audience, children though they were, that they would be sophisticated enough to pick up the messaging. You tend to, or my own kids do. I mean, I just went to the cinema with my son, who's 12, to see Toy Story 4 and got the running commentary of all the plot holes and everything through. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And I think if you force that sort of sentimentality on it, they, they know. I think people underestimate kids. That's definitely why it resonated with me as a kid. 
more and Warship Gang really resonated with me the Dark Crystal I like some Disney I love the Fox and the Hound but I used to find Disney too much as a kid I like that rather than killing the mother that the mother is the main character here and she's got that wonderful strength as well but it's not this um, it's like we talked about that sort of nuance that frailty and vulnerability but she's also the strongest character in it it's such a... When I think about the other films that were being made at the time, we had Labyrinth a little bit later on, but it was mainly centred around male heroes, so I don't know if that was something that resonated with me as well. Just this real sense of female strength was quite different to a lot of the, the children's films that were being made. Like I mentioned E.T., that all revolves around E.T. and Elliot and boys... Well, not boys' films, but you know what I mean. So yeah, she's great, Mrs. Brisby. Even beyond that, just the the positioning of the protagonist as the parent, having an adult protagonist, you know, it it is somewhat a departure because a lot of ch- children targeted an- animation or uh, media will give us a child protagonist. You get that empathetic connection with uh, the child audience and the child protagonist, and that's also feeds into why parents have a tendency to end up dead because one of the worst things we can imagine as a child is the loss of our parent. And while this certainly does have an absentee parent, the positioning of it is also focused upon Mrs. Brisby, which is a departure from traditional children's uh, st- stories. I think that's why in the less good sequel, the it transitions to Timothy, that they wanted a more youthful protagonist, and it didn't work. No, it doesn't work. I the one thing I love mentioning the dead parent is the fact that they don't layer that on as well. They don't they don't portray the kids as victims either. They they don't really go for that sentimentality either. So it feels like emotionally very true. And I think that's wonderful. I think it, despite the fact that she is a parent, even as a kid, you could relate to somebody who was just really struggling and trying and doing their best. So it didn't really matter she was a parent or a kid or whatever the character's just so well formed and so well performed and so well animated that you just really invest in her it doesn't matter the other thing i want to bring up is that the rats of nim and mr aegis and jonathan they were all altered and from what i understand the kids are altered as well you know they share some of jonathan's new dna and they talk about that a lot more in the book as far as are the children also intelligent do they also have these new abilities that the rats and and these remaining two mice had and the answer is yes so mrs brisby is kind of an outsider because she is quote unquote just a field mouse that jonathan fell in love with but yet she is elevated because she shouldn't have this intelligence that he had, but she learns how to read. She can understand this stuff. She is she's smart as well, and the way she gets out that, of that cage. Yeah, she's super smart. I did wonder about the kids, though, so I'm glad you... Because I did actually wonder about that when I was watching it yesterday. Have the children got some of this, whatever it is, this NIM DNA? And so that's interesting. Interesting they didn't bring that into the story, though. Or I guess it was superfluous, though. So it was more about her and her journey. Well, they would have had to have drawn Punnett squares. It would have gotten really messy. But I did think well, that's interesting. No, I like that idea. But she's just as smart. And you wonder if it's because Jonathan... So there's talk of him teaching her to read and stuff. 
you know, you wonder how much of that is her and how much Jonathan had a hand in it. But she's truly independent. She relies on the rats for help, but at the end, it's her that saves everyone, which is just great. She can read the back of the amulet. She can read other things. She reads what's happening in that book of Nicodemus's. So, yeah, the the only sad thing to me is that, talking again about the aging thing, is that her kids are going to age a lot slower and she's going to end up passing away before she get, even gets to see her kids grow up. But let's not think about that, I guess. Yeah, that gets into some dark territory. Very dark. Best not acknowledged. But yeah, the way that she figures out how to get out of that cage that she's caught in towards the end, that scene is very disturbing to me. When she cuts her arm, I always gasp and just, oh, I always feel for her when she's there. Yeah, seeing that as a kid, and there is a bit of blood in this as well. I saw this before I saw Watership Down. And so that, I think that was possibly the first time I saw blood in a cartoon. And I found it really disturbing. Looking back on it yesterday, because when they're having the sword fight, the fact the swords are covered in blood, it's quite wild for a kid's film. Oh, yeah. And while, while the, the, the blood and gore is relatively tame compared to some things, the fact that it is, it's in there at all is, as you say, wild. You know, that's not something that gets acknowledged all that much. But kids have enough sophistication to handle that sort of content. And it's, it's, a, it's an argument I've made, and I'm pretty sure we, we evoked this when we were talking about Dark Crystal, that I believe it's, I believe it's necessary for children to be challenged by their media and to present a sanitized uh, view of the world is doing them no favors rather to present the dangers of the world and also to present the consequences of those dangers in a safe environment. I think that does a lot much more for a child's development as a functional human being than to essentially nerf the world. Tell that to some of the parents now though. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure we could tell that to any any uh, parent of almost any generation. There's going to always be the tendency to think of the children. When my son was about five, his classmate he had uh, the mother wouldn't let them hear this, her son, and therefore, if he came over to us, watch SpongeBob because she was too violent. I'm like SpongeBob. Yeah, there's a lot of that goes. So I don't know what she would have made of something like. Secret of Nim, or God forbid, Watership <laughs> Down, which apparently recently had a lot of complaints to Netflix about that. So I'm oh, like, what this? This isn't a kids' film; it's a horror film. We were loving that shit when we were kids. They showed it at schools. This it was the story they showed you to tell you about death. And mm. not long after that, we got When the Wind Blows. Oh, oh Lord. Oh. Oh man, great great film, but uh, ooh, de- devastating. Explain that to somebody the other day. They were thinking about whether to buy the restored version. They were like, "Oh, those old people look cute." I'm like, "It's not a cute film." Seriously, <laughs> believe me. Would recommend getting that restored version, though. It looks it's a beautiful film. Beautiful film, but it's just. I think I must have been about eleven or twelve. Not a little kid. I think we were just going into senior school then, but God forbid. I talk about having an existential crisis when I walked away from that. What's funny, you know, kind of uh, picking on that is that uh, there was no real consistency as f- in terms of the content that my mother would or would not allow me to consume. She had, I famously remember that she was, um, 
she was always anti me watching G.I. Joe because it was so violent. Yet she had no problem with me watching the A team. So there's no consistency. No one got hurt in the A team. They could they could land from the sky in a helicopter, which would blow up, and everyone would just get out. Well, no one, no one got hurt in G.I. Joe either, but uh, something about it. I love the A-Team, though, but they were, it was pure cartoon non-violence in that. Yeah, I, th- I think she just had a thing for face. It's get crash that helicopter, you know, smash that van, you'll never get hurt. It's fine, you just <laughs> <laughs> roll up your yeah. eyes, you'll be fine. I mean, there was an episode where they were using watermelons to defeat the bad guys, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like what's that under siege film where they're actually using cheese in cannons oh wow i don't know don't that remember. one Bo, it's, it's one of those under siege films i'm sure they they start firing bits of cheese or so i remember watching it with my dad stoned and <laughs> <laughs> was he stoned or you stoned we both were sorry my parents are very responsible people <clears throat> I did really pay attention this time as far as the way that Justin keeps his hands clean. And so far as he stabs Jenner, but then it's like, okay, that's enough. You know, we're, we're done here kind of thing. Like you, you are defeated. But then when Jenner goes to, you know, basically stab him in the back that the death blow is dealt by Sullivan. Cause it always, I'm always paying attention to how we get away with the bad guy being defeated while the good guy doesn't actually murder the bad guy. And there's almost always a uh, wrought iron fence for the bad guy to fall on. (laughs) Or a series of vines to result in the very brutal death of uh, uh, Brian Blessed's character in in Disney's Tarzan. Yes, yes. But here, I mean, Sullivan redeems himself basically by murdering Jenner, which I appreciate in that. You know, that's the final thing that Sullivan die, does before he dies. Yeah, you know, it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. It's interesting you bring that up and something I never really thought about, that if you look at a lot of children's animation, the good guys do not kill. The villain is always undone by their own villainy. And in this case, you know, uh, he betrayed Sullivan. Sullivan uh, redeemed himself by killing him and then died himself. But uh, Justin was not allowed to deliver the death blow. Was Interesting. I the only one who wanted yeah. him to get together with Mrs. Brisby? It was actually like a totally girl thing. I don't know how that would work, the whole rat-mouse thing, because I was wondering. There were a couple points. Very carefully. Very carefully. You know, maybe there's this crossbreed thing that prohibits it, and I don't know, it might be a bit weird. But I don't know. They had a bit of chemistry going, though. Oh, they did. I mean, Justin is pretty dreamy. He's got that real, like, Robin Hood from the, the Disney Robin Hood look going on. Yeah, totally. I wanted them to get together. I did think, you know, maybe they're not allowed, but they're kind of from the same animal family. If if I don't rats can really want to think about it too and much, do magic. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure somebody's written stories about it on the internet. <laughs> electricity. I'm sure you know a rat and a mouse can get married. Sure. Is that a spark between us, or is that your amulet? Uh. <laughs> Oh, dear. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, with this being 1982, we are just about to Return of the Jedi, and we've already had two Star Wars films, so her grabbing that amulet and being able to move the stone and stuff, it's very the Force to me. It really reminded me of Yoda moving the X-Wing and Empire Strikes Back. I guess this movie really reminds me of Empire Strikes Back when I think about it, which is good because that's one of my favorite films. Around the same time, I think. Uh, Yeah, I think uh, two years earlier for Empire. 
but yeah, right around, right around in the early eighties. A little bit later on, when they showed it in the school holidays, it would have been around this same time. We were seeing a lot oh, of dark things at that period. <laughs> Everything was dark. We saw Popeye. That's really dark. We saw even the Muppet movies got moments of darkness. Well, you mentioned E.T., and apparently they released this right before E.T. came out. It's like, thanks, guys. Way to fucking go. Yeah, E.T. <laughs> was one of, that was one that really devastated me as well. Did anybody expect E.T. to be the huge success that it was? I don't think I mean, so. I mean, the look of the E.T., I mean, who, who would imagine that children would be able to glom on to that looking, weird-looking alien? I still got my E.T. here, actually. Sure. I still got it. I was totally invested. I had the, they, had, they put E.T. on everything, which is, I mean, they had all the Star Wars merchandise, but that was the first time my brother had that. But that was the first time I was ever interested in any merchandise from a film, and they literally went mad. Every every sweet, every mac, like everything was ET themed, and I would just remember they had these biscuits that would dye green ET biscuits. It was just insane, but I was totally into that. Friend of the show, Chris Cummins, was just doing like some sort of like a sci-fi explosion or whatever. He does these different shows, and he was talking all about that book, Letters to E.T., where it was actual letters that kids wrote to E.T., and it was just fascinating to read because he reprinted some of those. It was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. And then, you know, I mean, there's the apocryphal story of uh, the whole idea of uh, M&Ms refusing to let Spielberg use M&Ms in the movie, and then Reese's came in with Reese's pieces and just like blew up the market because <laughs> I mean, it's like oh yeah no who's who's gonna want the our candy in this ugly looking alien movie no no way it was t- i think it was because he was so ugly though that you really i don't know it's like the pug thing isn't it yeah i could see that well yeah and it, as ugly as he is he still has that essential quality that makes it appealing to children that's also present within pugs and it's certainly present within the character design of Mrs. Brisby it's the large expressive eyes if you get the eyes right children will uh be drawn to that i think there was a study that's done it was due to the development of our eyesight that the first thing we learn to focus on is eyes and that if we have large Expressive, cute eyes and things, it inspires empathy within us. Well, I mean, E.T. was appealing enough that Michael Jackson was even involved with him for a while. It's worth mentioning because, you know, we, we talked about E.T. and we're obviously talking about Secret of Nim, but uh, dipping into that great repeating conversation and the debate of was 1982 the best year for film? <laughs> I don't know. I still am a big fan of 1986 if I had to pick one. That's fair. Though I will say, Conan the Barbarian did come out in 1982, so that is slightly moving my preferences over. <laughs> There's the needle, huh? The between that yeah. and the thing. <laughs> you know, you know, there, it was a pretty stacked year. See, I don't know. I think 1930 was the best year, but you know, it's just me. Well, people didn't know how to act back then. I read film Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go, Cat, bringing in knowledge and film history on us, man. <laughs> I'm just supposed to to wallow in 80s nostalgia, and here you are actually bringing a sophisticated commentary to this. Fuck you guys, I'm going to go watch Stranger Things right now. (laughs) Come on, I had an hour with some Spielberg haters the other week, and you were sagging E.T. off. And I think, for whatever Spielberg did later on, I mean, that film was like, seeing it at the time as a kid, 
on its release, and I know Mike did, it was like nothing we'd ever seen before, just like the original Star Wars were like nothing we'd ever seen before. I think it's really easy to take that for granted that we've seen it all now. You know, oh, wow, you know, it's just kitsch and it's overly sentimental and whatever. But at the time, it was just pure magic. Because and, and even Nim was just pure magic because it's so different to the other things that were being made. It's easy to, you know, if you came a generation after that and you're seeing it with all these other things that came afterwards, it's easy to be cynical about it, I think. But E.T. just totally blew my mind. So, and, you know, Secret and Nim did as well. It's one of the films that stayed with me from that time. It was amazing watching it back because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. The amount that I'd actually remembered... And I'm terrible remembering things in film, but the amount that it actually stayed with me in my memory was just incredible. Well, two things I didn't remember was that Edie McClurg does a voice in here, but I think she just laughs. She doesn't even have a line. She's the lady crow at the end. Oh, that's who that was. Though speaking of some of the other voice casts, I have to give a shout out to Hermione, Hermione Baddeley, uh, who I, uh, yep, the uh, anti shrew, and I will always know her best as the, uh, the maid from, uh, Mary Poppins. Oh, which was right. a huge, huge, uh, film from my childhood. I just talked about her recently because I did a commentary for Midnight Lace, hmm. and she has a small character in that. She's a barmaid in that, but she's, she's, had a succession of these sort of strange little maid or aunt or <laughs> seemed to be. And yeah, she was in Maud, which I didn't really know Maud because we didn't really get that one over here, but she was the maid in that, wasn't she? So she seemed delegated, but she's a great character actress. I would be very curious to go back and watch Maud now because I remember being not necessarily scandalized by it, but it was so like, you know, oh, feminism and oh, how dangerous kind of thing. And like <laughs> Maud herself and then like Adrian Barbeau with uh, – I think she went brawless in the show. Is that right? I just remember like being captivated by Adrian Barbeau as the daughter. Riffing off of uh, Adrian Barbeau and her connections to uh, John Carpenter, uh, one thing I had no idea until I was looking up is the voice of Mr. Aegis, Arthur Mallet, uh, in a celebrated character actor in his own right, but he also played the graveyard keeper in John Carpenter's Halloween. Why do they do it? <laughs> no way, I didn't really- Same guy. <laughs> oh, who is also in uh, Mary Poppins as well. Yeah, and, exactly. And... Uh, <laughs> what's his name toodles and hook but for me i i always thought that that was what's the guy's name bernard hughes the guy that played mr merlin on tv and it was the master control was he the master control program in uh tron as well was he yeah well he he was uh no he wasn't mcp sorry he he was there he was like worked with uh tron and all those guys uh but he like looked like a sphinx almost he was mm. the old man in tron gotcha yeah i forgot that it's actually i think it's david warner as uh the voice of mcp isn't it i think so i know david warner was the main villain but i think i think they also used him as the voice of mcp i didn't remember that paul williams had a song in this i didn't remember that he plays this out Paul Williams, huh. though, he was literally the the theme tune of everyone's childhood in the early 80s, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, between this and the Muppet movie, my God. I love him. <laughs> Bugsy Malone. He did Bugsy Malone as well, didn't he? He did, which I will secretly admit to you two and nobody else that's listening to this, I still have yet to see Bugsy Malone. Jesus Christ, you're going to have to do a show on that one. 
yeah, Chris uh, Chris Dashu is obsessed with that movie. He keeps bringing it up because I think it blew his mind. But it's so you've got Jodie Foster, and I loved it as a kid. And I went back and watched it quite recently as an adult, and some of it is so inappropriate. You've got Jodie Foster; he's basically playing a prostitute. He's <laughs> got this song in it called "My Name Is Tallulah," and she's like twelve, and all the dancers are like burlesque, and they're all little kids. And I was just like, Jesus Christ! What is it with young Jodie Foster playing, playing prostitutes? My name is Tallulah, and she's doing all these wiggles. It's just like this is just so like, what were they thinking? It is amazing, and the songs are amazing in it as well. So yeah, you need to get on that one. All right, we'll do. I will have to add it to the list. Maybe in twenty twenty one. Start the twenty twenty one list already. You probably already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen. I've seen your to do list. Good. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with the producer of The Secret of Nim, Gary Goldman, right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv, that's ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us 
and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. What was the appeal of Secret of Nin as far as being your first feature film production at Bluth? This came to us basically from Ken Anderson, who was a uh, high up in, in the artist areas of Disney. He was a famous guy among among anybody there and and he, he wasn't one of the nine old men but he was a uh, a great uh, character designer he had been a layout on some of the best pictures that they did in those first five films you know between uh starting with snow white and, and pinocchio and and bambi and you know this guy was just a guy that you would listen to and he he had read a book called mrs frisbee and the rats of nim he had gone to um, Rooley Riveman, who was our producer director, while we were working on Pete's Dragon. He had taken the book to to uh, Wooly. You know, he pitched it to him, and and Wooly said, "No, no, 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 no. We've we've already done a, a mouse uh, feature. We've got a mouse on our on our logos, and uh, no, I'm not interested." And you know, Ken was actually really upset when he came down to uh, the first floor, and uh, he went right to Don. He and Don had had an experience uh, on Pete's Dragon, setting everything up of... Uh, Don was selected to be the director of the animation in Pete's Dragon. But when he came down to uh, to see Don, he brought the book with him, and he told that story that Willie didn't want anything to do with it. And he said, listen, when you guys are are in charge here. You you must take this book and make a movie of it. It's a great book. So Don took it, and then he called me from my office, and I came down there. He says, and he told me the story that Ken had just did a, uh, a pitch with him, and and felt really un, uh, unsettled about the fact that uh, uh, Willie Rytherman wasn't going to um, let him do this, you know. I read it that one night, and I think I, uh, I think I kept reading and finished it by about three o'clock in the morning, because I couldn't put it down. So the next morning, I went in and I took the book to Don, and I said, Don, uh, you better start reading this. This is really good. He said, Well, I'll give it to John and see what he says. John Pomeroy, and John Pomeroy came back with the same ideas. It, it, it you know, Ken's right. It, uh, it's really a good story and it's, it's going to be a good movie. So Don, Don took, took it home and he did his share of, of uh, <laughs> reading through it and came back and we were all just sort of giddy at that point, you know, and, and we weren't even at the point that we were doing that. We were not thinking of leaving Disney at all. We were trying to make Disney better. We were upset, by the way, is, we loved the the movies Snow White, Pinocchio, 
Bambi, Cinderella, oh, and Dumbo, and 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 even Frank Thomas, who I became an an underling with him. I became his in betweener, and uh, he had when we went up to see. Cinderella, and I came back down. And I went, wow, that is just so emotional. He says, I think that's the best story we ever did with Cinderella. It blew me away when he said that because I thought he would be more interested, not interested, but to, to tell me that, you know, Pinocchio was the best or Snow White was the best. And, we, and as storytelling, we'd never got past uh, Snow White. But that, that's how we came up with um, The Secret of Nim. We changed the title. But um, we knew when we were going in, it was going to be a great project. And how did you guys go about adapting it? What changes did you make to the book to bring it more into the animated realm? Several things. It was There was so much of the two plots going on at the same time that it uh, we felt that we're not going to get this done in, in even two hours. You know, It could be more than two hours to do the way that it was laid out in the book. And uh, we had a we actually we had a bunch of kids working with us in uh, in Don's garage for about for, uh, quite a while, like anywhere from seven total years, doing two different projects. And uh, um, these kids had all worked with us for at least four and a half years on Banjo the Woodpile Cat, which was like a 27-minute project for theaters and TV, and it was on our own. But we, we asked the, student, the, the kids that came in there with us uh, to read the book and, and give us their impression of, of what would be the best thing to handle here. Were we going to do it with uh, Mrs. Brisby and the family, or is there going to be uh, more about the, the rats? And um, the one person that we really appreciated was uh, Carmen Oliver, who was the head of uh, ink and paint for picking colors and mixing colors. When Dawn asked her about it, she said, "Well, I think it's all about the boy and the and the and the mother." And she's she's a single uh, a parent at this point. Her father, her husband had died, and it was sort of a comment that was it just picked up on what we thought about anyway. But uh, having her come to us that way, we decided we would do that, and so we pulled out a lot of things. There were a lot of fun things that were in what was going on in the, in. Uh, the rat's den, if you put it that way, down underneath the uh, farmer's house. We took a lot of stuff out that could have been really fun and entertaining uh, in the film, but uh, we went through that thing doing two pages a day. Don would go do the two pages, and then we'd have a critique every morning. It just sorted out, and we, and at the same time in your head, or in Don's head, it actually is t- timing and how many for each sequence you go into, or either chapter or whatever you want, how many minutes are we going to be in that in that chapter, and figuring out ways that we can move quickly but still get the information out to the audience, and uh, that's the way we worked it as we went around. And we once we um, do did the first I don't know ten ten pages or so, and we had some dialogue. Uh, we were starting to looking for uh, who we were going to put in there for our our actors that are going to be the voices and the first person that we actually got was um it was dom deloise that we selected the three of us were all trying we were all watching the end on tv at our each each of our homes and after we saw the end of it i started calling don and his phone was busy 
then I called John Pomeroy and he said he didn't answer. He it was busy as well. And for 40 minutes, uh, I kept trying to call the two of them. And finally, I got through to Don. And I said, where, where have you been? And, you know, uh, he says, I've been on the phone with, with uh, John Pomeroy. And uh, I said, well, I'm, I've, I've been trying to call you. I've been watching this movie, The End, you know, with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. And, and I think he should stop. He says, that's what we saw, too. <laughs> and, we, and we like Dom DeLuise as the crow. And after we did at least one recording with him, the recording, he's recording the dialogue that Don wrote for it. And also there was another guy that uh, was working with us, uh, Will Finn. He wrote a lot of the dialogue for, for The Crow. But if you think about it, when we watch, we listened to it uh, after the recordings and we said, you know what? We need more of this. This character is a clown. This is the clown. This will be the whenever anything is going down, you know, and we can cut to a sequence that has got the crow, it'll bring the audience back up. It's almost like when Bambi's mother gets killed, the next sequence you're in the spring and the, and Bambi's grown up a little bit and it brings him back and the music's saying the same thing, bringing the audience back and stop crying about the mother dying, you know. I think the first two we got was Peter Strauss and Derek Jacobi, an English actor, and... uh we had watched his series. I'm trying to think of his, um, uh, I Claudius. That's it. We'd seen that as well. And John Pomeroy is the one that said, why don't we get Derek in here? And uh, same thing with, um, John Carradine. Well, I love John Carradine in some of those older movies, you know, we brought him in and he was really interesting. I'll tell you a little story about that later, but, Arthur Mallet, it was great, and Paul Shinar. I mean, and this guy was so good, and he died young. I think he was only 50 years old when he passed away. Hermione Baddeley, also another English actress, and she was great as uh, as the um, shrew, anti-shrew. Elizabeth Hartman, that came from, um, she'd had a, uh, that movie, she won an Academy Award, The Patch of Blue. You know, we loved that movie. We loved the way she talked and Everything in it, she thought, we thought she'd be the great for the mother. It just started picking up, you know, and we didn't, we didn't start with the opening, you know, what you see in the opening of it. We went in and started recording, uh, characters acting together. You know what I mean? We're, we're not, they're both in the, in the room at the same time, but the two characters, any two characters, we wanted to get, uh, I think we started with a radio track. We call it a radio, a radio track, um, of Mrs. Brisby meeting the crow. And so that we had a, a thing that would see if we were getting the characters and their back, uh, their background, you know, what they're, where they're coming from and, and explain, basically explain the character to the audience, you know, with Jeremy. Jeremy's looking for a girl. He's, he's looking to make a nest and, and, uh, have a family. And it was funny because one of our uh, special effects uh, animators or an assistant animator, he was our uh, our model of, of what was going on. Because if he was over at Don's house watching some TV while we were eating at lunch or something, uh, he kept looking at, you know, was on, handed on a Spanish program where there was a lot of pretty women on him and dancing and singing going on. And he almost like put his hands out like trying to grab you know, pretty girls, you know, he liked pretty girls. 
And uh, Don kept thinking about that. He, he said, you know, what he's doing here is probably what we have for uh, for the crow. And uh, and that's how we, we would do each one of the characters, you know, doing a, a kind of a, a background list of things that the characters might have been through and uh, what they want to be. Almost like when you look back on your own life and what you're doing now, is this what you wanted to be? Or you, what kind of things you went through that were b- bad for you? That kind of thing. What, what causes them to be their character? I'm very curious. When people are recording their audio tracks, do they have a picture of what their character looks like in front of them? Not in front of them, but we bring uh, several drawings of that character so they can see what the character looks like. And, um, you know what? I mean, if you've really got a good actor and they, they've already read the script, so they know what's going on and you can even, you can even read, you know, their character, um, by what they're saying, um, pretty much most of those actors that we use were pros. All of them were pros. We tried, uh, finding, you know, when we were working on, on our little banjo, the woodpile cat, then we would bring thing people in because we were paying for it all ourselves and we didn't have that much money. We were counting on these people to be uh, ready to go. Of course, they've read all the lines before they actually came in. And uh, and each and every one of them, we did show them images of the of the drawings that had been created. Don, by the way, was the one. Don Bluth himself was the character designer for everything that was in The Secret of Him. And he's fast, so that whenever we went in, there might be, you know, fifth drawings of the character in different um, poses. And one of the biggest things you're really always careful of in animation is that your characters have to be appealing and um, interesting to look at. With somebody like um, on John Carradine, when we met John Carradine, we, we did the recording at Paramount, and he showed up, and he was... Crippled. I mean, he was walking, but he was limping. And uh, when we shook his hand, his hand was, I mean, his knuckles just were all swollen up. He had a really bad um, arthritis, you know, and, and we said, wow, that must be really uncomfortable. He says, Will you, sorry, uh, this isn't that bad. My feet are worse. And he said, my feels, my, all my toes are curled up in the shoes. And it was a very, um, you know, it was a really interesting the way he uh, he walked. And what, John Pomeroy was the one that would be doing the animation for the owl. And he threw that in there, remembering how he walked. So if you look at the movie and you'll see the as when the owl decides to, you know, told, told Mrs. Brizzy what he wanted her to do. And he, he says he had to go and he's going out to fly away, but if you look at him, he's limping on those feet that he's doing. And, you, and the same thing with the knuckles of the of their claws. It, you know, it's all thinking about the actor itself. Was there ever any fear that the movie might be too dark or intense for kids, especially with the animal experimentation? You know, it wasn't for us. We were thinking, you know, what our experience at Disney, we kept feeling that, you know, it seems to be instead of like what Walt Disney did back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, he wasn't afraid to, to put in darkness in there. 
In fact, it's more interesting to, to have moments here and let people know, you know, they're not, everybody's not good. There are bad people out there. We wanted the movie to be interesting for not only children, but for adults. We had a, a, a slogan on it was we, it would be for the eight to eighties. And when Aurora, the, the company that was financing us, when he opens up and there's a book there and, there and Nicodemus is writing in the book and he's got these gnarly hands and they came marching over to the studio and said, what are you guys doing? That is the scariest thing I've ever seen. And we said, no, it's it, this. Don't worry about this. I'll be fine. You know, and they were just freaking out. And uh, eventually, you know, they bought it. And uh, we asked that they get a, PG rating. We need a PG rating. We got a lot of dark stuff in here. We want PG. And we got it. Then they suddenly went running back and said, we need a G to the people that that, that watched the film and, and came up with a PG rating. And they got it. And, and we said, gosh, guys, we killed a character. We actually said the word damn in the, in the movie, a, a cuss word. And we did it because we wanted a PG rating. And back then, when uh, when the critiques came out, and it was really we got really good good uh, critiques, you know. And people were saying, you know, it's too bad. It, it could be better if it was uh, uh, eight or older for kids, you know. And it should have been PG. It may have tra- chased some people, you know, afraid to uh, to bring their ch- kids into the movie. But most of the ones that I saw or anybody else saw, even kids that were in with audiences, with their parents. There was a girl in Indianapolis, I'll never forget this, when they, it started up, about 15 minutes into the movie, they could see that they were getting up and going across a row and then and they were backing up to go out. The little girl had to go to the bathroom and they they went across. They kept looking at the screen. And at the same time, when they got out, they started to walk up. But they turned around and as they walked up, they kept watching the screen. Then they stopped at the at the door and and kept watching for another 10 or 90 seconds or so. And then she ran out the door. He went with her and they were back in about a minute. You know, it just blew me away. I said, that was probably a six-year-old girl, little girl. They were so fascinated with it. And everywhere I went when I was promoting the movie, I saw the same thing everywhere. Same thing with John Pomeroy. But John Pomeroy told me a story where he was sitting near the back of a theater, and the theater was three-quarters to full, and there were mostly adults. And adults even in their 60s and 70s, and he could hear them talking as they were watching the movie saying, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. We're very happy with, uh, with the way it goes. And, you know, right. Even today, if, if I meet somebody and they don't know who I am and, uh, they say, what do you do for a living? You know, and I, I tell them and they say, Oh, well, what, what movies did you make? And then the, I start making a list and they said, ah, just the first one I usually say is uh, I might say that I made, you know, I worked on six movies at Disney, but uh, then when I hit The Secret of Nim, they go, oh, my God, that's my favorite movie. Everybody, everyone that always comes up, that's their favorite movie. Going back to the adaptation, I'm very curious how the whole idea of magic and the amulet came about. It's a way of telling the audience it looks like she's he's giving her a um, an ornament, you know what I mean? It was from her husband, for her from her husband, and 
he's telling her a, a mission here. I mean, what he she needs is courage because she's frightened and she's even gone all the way to the owl to figure out what do I do? I, I, my boy's got pneumonia and I've got to move him to another place. The the tractor's coming. I guess the magic of it is the owl and Nicodemus because they know things, you know. And so you in that meeting where she meets with him, she tells him the story of her husband and how he helped them get out of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, you know, NIMH, NIM. And in that meeting, he talks about that amulet and you have to have courage of the heart, you know, and and things will happen for you. So it was something that Don brought up, and I think it really worked. It really was exciting at the very end where she's rescuing her own children. When it comes to NIM, what kind of technical innovations, if any, did you do while that was going on? The biggest things we were trying to do is put a lot of production values back into animation. We pushed and shoved a lot of special effects going on. Most of them are were made up at that time, and Don would actually do drawings that would look like the effect he wanted to get. And then our uh, supervising animator uh, for special effects was George Lanfer, and he really guided everything through. He could pull things off and doing things that I'd never heard of, and but I think this had been worked before. He was a Disney animator as a special effects artist, and he had remembered all the things that he'd ever done with it, and, and any time that uh, we gave him a challenge to, to bring something out, he came up with a lot of ideas about exposing backlit. They would do a animated scene, for instance, and there's sparkles and things going on. We used um, black paper, um, probably it was called Ex- Exeter paper. It has a, a high gloss uh, front and f- flat on the back, but we, we could actually transfer the paper that he did, which was on white paper, and burn it into a um, this black paper, and then they would take an exacto blade and cut it open, and we have a light underneath the platen that would push the light through those holes and and they would be some design, lots of designs in them. And you, and you see the majority of that kind of thing going on when they're pulling that uh, uh, concrete little house that she, you know, the concrete uh, block that they were bringing out. And it was like things zooming everywhere. But we do multiple, multiple backing the, the negative back up, say, starting at a, a clear uh, highlight and then come back, start it again and blur it. And then another one uh, that would even be more, so it glowed. So we used an awful lot of backlight uh, anim- uh, effects animation. So is this like all in camera, or is, are you using like an optical printer for this? No, we didn't have an optical printer. What we did, what we did is we we built to, had uh, this company called Mechanical Engineering or Mechanical. What is it called? Mechanical. It'll come to me. They uh, they did two. Um, um, multiplane camera stands for us. And, and they also, you know, brought in the stop motion cameras. And eventually we even, in about three or four movies later, we were able to put everything on a computer so that we could, uh, as we were adjusting everything for the exor- the, ex- the X sheets for the cameraman, they would just set it up based on the uh, X sheets. 
they, all of the uh, camera moves that did. Uh, I was big part of uh, putting the, the, the moves on there so that they knew just how the movements kind of kind of work. But eventually, we could actually act. I was going to say when we were in Ireland, probably on uh, Land Before Time, and also on uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, that we had finished up all of this extra ways of doing it with computers. Not, I'm not talking about. The camera is still the camera, and we were still using film, but it was each time that they would click a frame, it would be, it would set up the next one automatically. You know what I'm saying? With using a computer. Here you guys are kind of breaking from Disney a few years prior, but this is your first big, you know, foray outside of Disney. And I'm curious, were they giving you any sort of attitude or maybe even trying to undermine you when it came to your project? Well, they did. We didn't know at first, you know, the, I, there's a, there was a thing that happened when we went in. It was on Don's 42nd birthday. We had envelopes in our hands and, um, people on the second floor saw us walking in. We, we were off on a hiatus because we'd worked really hard on Pete's Dragon and on Small One and, uh, we worked, well, anywhere from 80 to 100 hours a week. And uh, they weren't paying us overtime. Then said you had to do at least 56 hours before you get to do overtime. I said, well, why don't you look at, uh, I, just, I was talking with uh, Ed Hansen, who was our production manager at that time. Uh, I said, you know, we're working more than 46. I come in here at 6, so does Don, so does John Pomeroy, so that we're ready for the people working underneath us. We'll have stuff for their work that day or every day. He went away and he looked it up and he said, oh my gosh, you know, and uh, we ended up getting like six weeks with pay for Peach Dragon. And then after we finished the small one, the same thing happened again. It was, And we didn't even take it at the time because they wanted to get going on uh, Fox and the Hound. So we worked on that and eventually we said, let's go out and keep working on Banjo. And uh, and it was at the same time that uh, the money was coming and, and uh, from the Aurora people. And uh, we came in, did our resignation, told uh, uh, the uh, Ed Hansen that uh, you know we tried, we tried to make it better. We, you know, and we he knows that we were very concerned about where it was, and it was starting to look cheaper. And we said this is going to keep going, and uh, you know, each time we we try to do something that makes it look better you're not him but people from upstairs were just saying no it's cost too much money to do it and we've got to keep these costs down our motto was we're going to challenge you we're going to go out and show that it can be done and maybe you can you come back we want you to come back when we left the building or when i left the building because they gave us i think 15 minutes or half an hour to leave the building i went in and got my family photos and different things that were my personal belongings and was leaving as and as i walked out between the uh, music building and the theater i heard ron miller hey gary and i and i turned around yeah he said uh, good luck i said thanks ron and i heard him say lower you're gonna need it and, uh, and that was a moment that uh, didn't hit me until I got past the guard shack and I said, hmm, <laughs> this is going to be interesting, you know. And we didn't find out until, gosh, four or five years later that, not, it might be not more than that, less than that, 
it came from when we got set up with Rick Dyer, who brought us Dragonflare. I started taking on licensing in our company, and suddenly we had a ton of people coming in for licensing. And we'd say, I asked them, where were you when we were doing Secret and M? He says, oh, Disney would, would settle to us. If we did any business with the Bluth, then um, they're not going to see another Mickey Mouse or anything in their licensing. And, uh, I mean, they were very open. And I said, would you actually sign a letter to that effect? Oh no, we still want to work with them, but you're doing a video game. They're not, they're not in the video business, you know, game business rather. So yeah, there was a lot of, uh, uh, issues with, uh, apparently that even with theaters were being, uh, told not to be dealing with us. So, and our problem with Secret and M was David Beagleman was the chairman of MGM UA. And or MGM, excuse me. David Beagleman was the chairman. I had uh, gotten a call when we were getting really close to the end. Uh, we had been told by uh, Aurora that they were able to go out and and uh, raise something like four point two million dollars for AdPub promo. You know where you're doing promotion and and uh, also it's helping get the reels out to the. It's actually giving the money to MGM. And in their deal with MGM, MGM was going to put up another, uh, I think he had 4.2. They get, they were going to put up another, uh, $2.3 million to try to sell this movie to the, to the audiences or to the theaters. Somewhere very close to, um, being done, uh, and long after we've been, it'd been months after the, the contract with, uh, MGM. I started getting calls from uh, vice presidents at MGM, seniors and, uh, you know, younger, uh, um, vice presidents who were leaving to go for, uh, you know, another, another studio. And I said, well, what's going on? He says, well, they're not going to spend any of that money that they promised you guys. Hey, they've told us don't touch any of that money. In fact, uh, I'm not interested in animation. The only people that knows how to sell animation is Disney. And uh, so they didn't find this out until probably six months after the movie was done and in the theaters. And uh, they came back, and, and I'm talking about the Aurora people, they came back and said, we did a $40,000 audit and found out that there's still something like 600000 of our money still in the bank, and we never got any of their money towards the promotions you know and mainly it's about tv you know and they did some really strange uh approach to this they called it a rollout campaign so it started in west coast uh, california oregon washington arizona and hawaii and then the next week it would move the next couple of states over and it took six weeks before it was across the whole country and and they had to actually really be careful about their promotions, you know, or they're going to do advertising, you know, you're just going to blow all of it and more of it. You would never get it. You wanted, if if you could do it, doing with the main TV channels, the big ones, then all the uh, ancillary ones afterwards, it would be, you know, if they would have just done it all at once. And we only had at the end, it was something like 670 theaters, 670 theaters. And we had good, um, uh, Critiques, as I said before, but, uh, we didn't get a lot of promotion. We didn't. We went on, I went on, all three of us went out on the road and, um, did t- TV 
interviews. We did uh, television, sorry, without television and uh, a newspaper and magazine. That went out, but it, you know, you know, you need television visual, visual. So you know, you need to show them what's going on to get people to come in. Was there ever any talk of um, adapting the other two Nim books and making a sequel? That was his daughter that wrote this, the second one. We don't do sequels, but it came up. It was some time, I guess, before we came back to the States when we were in Ireland. We started talking about, you know, what, maybe we should really think about another Secret of Nim, you know, a sequel to it. And then somebody brought up the fact that she had just finished a book on it. And then when we were brought to recruited to come to Fox and help them build an animation studio, because Fox had animation going on, but it was in other people's studios and stuff. They would be financing and distributing stuff. When we got to uh, Arizona here, we got a call from a, not Aurora, but it was somebody else. Oh, it was Aurora, but it was uh, a different owner of the company. And he called and said, is there any chance you guys could... Uh, could do um, this sequel there at Fox. You know, have you guys started your movie, whatever movie you're going to do? And I said, no, actually. And so we called Bill Mechanic and told him that there's this opportunity to do a uh, sequel. What would you think? Because they were not letting us get started on Anastasia. They they didn't want us to get started until they had a, a script that they thought was perfect. And I just laughed and said, there's no such thing as a perfect script, you know, it, it just blew me away. And, and uh, we sat there for, let's see, I got here in August of um, 94, and uh, we didn't get a, a green light until almost October of 95. And we had already had something like 240 people, and, and people were getting very upset. Somebody brought in a, a project that was sort of a a big trailer for, or no, it was going to be a video game based on Indian in the cupboard. And it helped uh, uh, by, you know, not losing $15 million uh, towards any money we needed to make the movie, the, the real movie where we were doing. Uh, but it was a loss, a big loss. And, and in the end, when I, we got, I think I gave them a budget of something like $38 million to do the movie it ended up to be 53 million, I think, at the end. It was because of that extra 50 million, 15 million that uh, we sat on while people were just getting sal- uh, salaries and not and coming to work, but nothing to do. How long did it actually take to do the production of Secret of Nim? Yeah, I had a schedule of 30 months, but then and that would have put us uh, in the theaters in August of '82, late August, just before school goes back. Aurora came roaring in and said, you know, we need to get this done. And this was probably in March. They told us this, February or March. We want to put this out in 4th of July weekend. And we just screamed, well, you're, you've got to be kidding us. There's Tentpole uh, Studios coming out. Uh, we had, I think there was $600 million movies that, that I don't mean the, the negative cost was negative, but, but the audiences um, you know, we're going to be lost in this. You, 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 you will not get an audience, a, a big audience, when you got all these other things going. And um, that—that's the way it happens too. So, uh, what we had to shorten everything at the end and race like mad to get it get it done. And we finished it up um, 
I think it would have been probably 26 weeks, 26, 26 months, excuse me. How was it for you actually sitting down at the premiere or wherever you see this for the first time with an audience and seeing your guys' work, see that first fully animated feature film that you had worked so hard on? Well, we felt it was beautiful, you know, and we actually watched it at uh, a theater that was right there on, I'm trying to think of what it's called, it's it's in Beverly Hills, sort of by the theaters or there, um, and they put that's where they put the um, those big lights that go up into the sky. It was the only place all over. There was other theaters that had it, but they didn't have anything like that. And we went to see it at that theater, and uh, we stood in the back. We didn't even go sit down. We stood at the back and and had about uh, I'd say three quarters, eighty percent filled. And uh, people were talking about it as we stayed. Not in the theater, but we came out before everybody else came out and just stood to listen to what people were saying went out. And it was all really good reactions. We had actually, Jerry Goldsmith and I went to two of the theaters just to make sure that all the sound was perfect. Because when we walked in and they started playing and we went, "Uh uh-oh. So we brought in a group of people that would we technically make it work better. Most theaters in, in those cases bring in somebody to redo the, the the matrix of what's going on with this with the surround sound. It was beautiful. I mean, uh, that's the only place you're, you're going to see it. Most There would be theaters all across the country that you might not have seen it as well as you would have seen it in those theaters that we did. That Jerry Goldsmith score is so good. How did you guys end up working with him? That's a funny story. So we wanted him. We knew we wanted him. And uh, I found out who his agent was and called him about it. We were about, I don't know, halfway through. Because you you got to get somebody before, way before you're done. And um, so we talked to, the, to him. And we finally got to talk to him. And uh, he... Uh, he was really interested in it. You know, he says, let me, let me see what I can do here. Uh, and he came back, the agent came back and said, uh, uh, how do you want to do this? And I said, well, I'd like, I'd like, uh, Jerry to come out to, to our studio here and we'll show him the movie. Cause there was you know, rough animation. There was some cleanup. There was some storyboards still in there. It wasn't done yet. Even the storyboards weren't done yet. We were probably, 65% into it, maybe 70. We said, would Jerry come out? And Jerry said, no, I don't want to go look at it. I'm going to send you my my um, music editor. And the editor came over and he introduced himself and and we shook hands and we sat down and started it going. And uh, <laughs> he said, stop, stop. I can hear Jerry's music. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, we used we used a lot of uh, stuff his and and other uh, mostly his stuff to to show the emotion going on in any and uh, any of those sequences. He says, well, let me call Jerry, and he called Jerry. He says, Jerry, you got to get over here. And he says, what's wrong? He says, because Jerry didn't want to see it with, with anything other than maybe sound effects and dialogue, and if not, maybe just dialogue. And his and his and his uh, uh, editor said, "You got to get over here. This is the best uh, mix I've ever seen of something. It was a rough pass." So he came over, you know, and he and he kind of fell in love with the whole thing. 
And uh, I was lucky, you know, I would be the one that would go to his house. You know, the first time he started doing doing um, his key, you know, uh, he would actually play it on piano. And, and in those days, you know, he just had his phone like I've got on my phone right now, a landline phone. And he would lay the phone down on his piano and play it. For and we would have it on speaker uh, with Don John and I listening to listening to it, and it just gave you chills. And even when we went to to England to do the do the recordings of it uh, with the, the orchestra, and uh, every time that they started up and for a rehearsal, the next one I would I would know that, and we all know it. But I'm a crier, and I would just tear when it when the music started going. And he'd, and he'd stop it and then change things and make it better. And then go back and let's go back to the top and start at the end, blah, blah, blah. And we were there for two weeks with him doing that. And, uh, you know, I, I still listen to it. I mean, I've got the, the CDs as well as the movie, but I don't look at the movie much. I think I saw it four or five years ago, but it went maybe 20 years before I'd seen it again. How did Paul Williams get involved that was Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith. We actually had uh, one of our act uh, uh, animators, a brother, was a musician, not just a musician. He was uh, Glenn Campbell's, um, I don't know what the part of it is, but what did he do? He was like the, the music director for Glenn Campbell on TV. And uh, he said, you know, I can, I can, I can write you a song, ly- lyrics and the, and the music. And... Um, he did one, and I and we were in love with it. It was very similar to another um, artist that um, I'm trying to think his name. Know when to hold him. What's the what's oh uh, Kenny Rogers? Thank you very much. He had a a beautiful movie, you know, something like Keep Going On. It was about. It was really a not a sad movie. It was a sad movie, but it was creating a, a, an image of somebody who has to keep driving forward, you know, for for all the things that have happened to them, and. Um, he did it, and uh, but Jerry came in and says, "You know, I think I can get, I can do something better than that." And he wrote that, he wrote it, and uh, and he brought in the little man. It was interesting because uh, he said, "Now he doesn't like his voice." He says, "So I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to bring a bottle of vodka with me when I come in because once I've had him have a few shots, you know, he's he's game to, to sing." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow." <laughs> And uh, so um, we said, oh, you know, whatever it takes. And I think he did do, he did it in less than three takes of, the, of, the, of that, uh, of his part, the lyrics, you know. And, but it was his poetry, you know. It, uh, once he heard uh, um, Jerry's music, it was really a, a great evening. And, and it, had, it didn't start until nine or ten at night because they're, they're busy during the day. So uh, he says, I hope you don't mind, but we're night people. You mentioned a little bit before um, Dragon Slayer, and I've always been curious how that project came to you. We had finished The Secret of Nim, and we were we had been working on East of the Sun, West of the Moon. And in uh, the end of July of 1982 was the um, uh, end of a contract for the union, the, um, the um, 84th, and was the 843 um, cartoonist union. They did a strike. In the middle of it, not in the middle of it, but by, let's say, October, I get a call from a guy named Rick Dyer. And Rick Dyer um, is sort of a computer whiz, and he'd been working on an idea for an anime, uh, for a, um, a 
arcade game. And uh, he he, um, called and he says, I just saw your movie, um, The Secret of Nim, and I want you to come and join us and help me make this make this game. I said, well, okay, we can think about it. And he said, well, can I come? I'm going to come up there. He was down in, in San Diego. And he says, I want to come up there with a, <coughs> a guy that has a distribution company for arcades. And uh, I'd like to bring him and introduce you to him and uh, see if we can get you guys to, to come on board to be partners with us. He shows up in a fancy uh, sports car, and uh, he's had he's already he's only 27 years old, I think, but he's uh, done very well for himself. And uh, he's been working on this, and it's like we're doing drawings that are on like a, a register, you know, like a, so that you just pull it through to to see. And uh, he says, "But my guys are are not what you guys do, and I I really think we need something like what you're doing." And um, and we were sitting there with a strike going on, and we had nobody there except us uh, in the studio. A guy that was once a, a top uh, cleanup artist at Disney was the head of the union uh, for our union. And uh, he came to the studio and actually came in and said, Gary, I'm going to have to everybody leave this building. You guys can stay. The receptionist can stay. Your, your production manager can stay. But everybody here that are members of the union, they're going to have to leave. It's, and they were all uh, almost crying got to leave, saying, uh, you know, I, th- those what you're looking at out there, that's about the TV people. That's not about features. He says, no, we, everybody has, when on a strike, everybody has to support everybody else. He said, this shouldn't be too long. And it turned out to be 73 days long. So this thing came up, and uh, I called the union and said, you know, I want to bring a few of these people back because we're doing doing a a video game. And there's no nothing in the union about about video games. And they agreed. So they let us do it. We did three video games. We did, you know, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And we had had almost finished Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp. And in March of 84, the distributor shut things down because he was already in chapter 11 and we we made enough money for him that he could have sold you know paid off all of his uh debts but they didn't do it and we and and suddenly you know uh weekly i think we had something like 300,000 a week that we were paying we had a huge crew working on that movie time game the, the check didn't come and it wasn't going to come and they were going to go into court and uh, so we had to find a <laughs> we had no money and we, and we found a bankruptcy attorney get this his name was moneymaker that's his last name we told him we don't have any money uh you know because the money that that we had when we should have gotten uh we didn't get it and uh he says all right well we'll just figure out something here so i gave him my pickup truck because his daughter needed a car to, to go to college. So that was our down payment. <laughs> and it was this little Toyota, you know, Toyota uh, pickup truck. And he was happy to take it and said, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll get this started. And four and a half years later, uh, it it came to fruition that uh, we ended up owning all the stuff, but there was no money to to come to us. So we were able to finish uh, the last one in 19... 19- uh, 
eight, I think, eighty-seven or eighty-eight, which was uh, Dragon Slayer Time Warp. Mr. Goldman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you for calling me. This is uh, exciting. I, the fact that you've got a podcast, they're very interesting. I know that people uh, really are interested in in what goes on in the animation and, and, and live action film. So thank you. We have a little secret. What? The most fun-filled movie of the year is only on video. <laughs> the Secret of Nim 2. Timmy to the rescue. Awesome! It's the story of a young mouse named Timmy. That's my boy. Who thought no one needed him. Fire! (coughs) Until the mice of Thorn Valley... We might be in real danger. ...needed someone brave to save the day. We're on a mission! We've got to save my parents! Let's go! It's a magical tale. You've got to have the courage to follow your heart. It's a musical adventure. One day I will show the world I'm my father's son. And most of all... Ah! Hold on! It's high-flying fun. Ah! What a ride. So share the secret with your whole family. Make the most of your life. The Secret of Nim 2. Timmy to the Rescue. Available only on video. All right, we're back and we're talking about The Secret of Nim. So I didn't really realize until starting to do research on this that there were actually two sequel books to this, which were Rasco and the Rats of Nim, and then R.T. Margaret and the Rats of Nim. So the Rats of Nim is the what we're going with as far as the, uh, the, the, the titles all having the same thing in common. And those two sequels were written actually by the author's daughter, so kind of picking up the family business. And then I didn't realize either, sorry to kind of go off on a tangent, but uh, Richard C. O'Brien, he did so many things that I have – either seen or am familiar with things like uh Z for Zachariah and I was which I know was uh I think there was a TV movie on the BBC and then there was just a recent adaptation with uh Chiwetel Ejiofor in it and uh Chris Pine and Margot Robbie so uh he's done a bunch of stuff I actually ended up picking up a bunch of his books um what was that one like report to the committee or no I can't remember what it was but the, it's some interesting sci-fi work that he was doing yeah, and I I actually haven't read uh, Z for Zachariah. I've read uh, Mrs. Frisbee. I read that when I was in school, and I read The Silver Crown at some point, but uh, I didn't read the later ones. I was very surprised that he had done so many things, and um, so yeah, the, and then reading about uh, Rasco and the Rats of Nim, I was like, okay, this is pretty cool, cool idea. You know, we're going to pick up with Timothy and go off from there, or Timmy, and 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 pick up from there, and he'll meet you know somebody who's related to one of the mice who was blown away, and we'll do all this kind of stuff. So there's like weird echoes of this that show up in. Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue, but it's not an adaptation. And I'm like, well, you've already got something. Why don't you just go ahead and adapt that? Because whatever <laughs> was written has to be much more successful than what they ended up doing. Can I just say, I'm looking at your notes on Secret of Nim 2, and half, like most of the film, I didn't know what was going on. So I just kept zoning out. I just, I just really couldn't pay attention to it, and those songs didn't help. Everyone had a fucking song. You had the obligatory jolly Caribbean sounding song by the peripheral characters. It was like a terrible, terrible poor man's Disney thing made for Nickelodeon or some cable TV channel. It was just 
Ugh. We talked about how gorgeous the animation is in Secret of Nim. You go, I mean, what I did was I literally popped out the DVD and stuck in the other one. And it was like, oh my God, somebody took a dump on my television. It's horrid. It's just so generic. You know, I can understand. I mean, obviously the anima- the budget was not quite there. And the animation studio behind it was certainly not of the same quality of Don Bluth's crew. But... You could try, right? I mean, you could at least try to do something of the higher quality instead of just going for the lowest common denominator. And I can understand from a certain standpoint, you're making something for kids. It doesn't necessarily have to be the greatest thing ever, but have a little bit of respect to what came before, right? It reminded me, didn't they do a purely animated Stuart Little sequel? My kids were really into Stuart Little. And they did the two with the actual, you know, the life, live action, and the, and I'm sure they did one that was completely animated, and that was just ugh. What? what <laughs> why have they done this? So we couldn't afford anyone or anything. So you know, we couldn't afford the actors. So we'll just draw it, and it's like, no, this doesn't work at all. So there's this bullshit prophecy about. Timmy leading the mice of Nim to do something or other, and they're in Thorn Valley, and it's mostly rats. And we get a return of all of these characters that we know from the first movie, but I think only Dom DeLuise comes back to do a voice, and everybody else is new voices. Uh, Arthur Mallet comes back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I knew you would, you would have my back on that. I got you, bro. Where are all these mice coming from? Are they all Mr. Aegis's kids? Dude gets around. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I could imagine that mice are, n- are naturally pretty fecund, and then you add in uh, his I- enhanced lifespan. Uh, but sure, why not? Sure, okay. So was I, those mice he blew down the pipe in part one, were some of those mice they had to rescue part of that pipe blowing thing? The girl that ends up showing up in here, she is the descendant of one of the mice that gets blown away. But the math doesn't necessarily make sense to me, because they talk about, in the first movie, they say that it was nine mice and 20 rats, and all but two of the mice blew away. So in my mind, that leaves seven mice. And then they keep talking about the six. And I was like, wait, are we missing a mouse somewhere here? I I don't know. Maybe one of them died. Could be. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, Jenny, and every time he called out Jenny, uh, we just were like uh, channeling uh, John Woo's The Killer, and we'd just call out Jenny every time. Because <laughs> <laughs> they call out Jenny's name a lot in this movie. And Jenny's the descendant of one of the smart rats as well. Another J name. It's the two brothers. It's it's uh, Aaron and Moses. No, sorry. It's Timmy and Martin. And Timmy's been chosen for this prophecy, and then Martin's really mad about it. And then Martin somehow goes off and grows up into Eric Idle. How does that happen? The same way that Timmy grows up to be Ralph Macchio? The age difference in the voices, the Eric Idle's got the accent. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Ah, uh, but you forget he's crazy, and if he's going to be crazy, he's got he has to be British. I'm just saying, I'm not I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying American sensibilities. If you're British, you're evil. That's true. That's true. I think the cat is inherently evil. Well, no, I'm not as evil as you two making me watch this terrible film, which I didn't know what was going on, and my dog kept barking at the songs, and 
I, at three in the morning and I was just like, I really need to look at my life choices because <laughs> what's going on here? I- I, I will say uh, straight out, I uh, opted not to revisit this film because I unfortunately was subjected to it many, many times when I was growing up. Because, uh, you know, children, they, they latch on to films and they want to watch them over and over again. And sadly, this was one that my younger brother latched on to, along with the very terrible Land Before Time sequels. So, I, I, I take it back. It was actually 11 mice. And so two dis- uh, two were left. So that makes the math even worse. It's not one missing. It's actually like three missing. So, Well, maybe there's some nails at the bottom of that pipe and five got impaled, you know, Cannibal Holocaust style. And then the rest of them uh, became the six. I don't know. <laughs> Just picture these poor little mice with the nails sticking out of their mouth. <laughs> See? <laughs> you, want, you, want, you want to go dark? Let's go dark. <laughs> Fucking Harvey Corman showing up in here as this crazy-eyed cat and... The woman who sounded like Wanda from uh, Fairy Godparents, but it wasn't her. I was looking her up just to see if it was the same person doing the VO, but nope, different voice artist. But what the fuck, man? These two cats and everybody's getting like their brains washed and the uh, people are acting like dogs. I'm just like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> This is some twisted shit. You're making it sound much better than it is. Oh, but, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, the reason why I'm not talking about the songs is because I had to fucking fast forward past them because they were so horrible. <laughs> I, I sat through them because I was watching it on streaming. I couldn't fast forward through them because my iPad was so I, t- I had to endure those fucking songs. And literally, one finishes and somebody says like a couple of lines and it's like, oh my God, they're going for another song. Oh, yeah, wait. It's like, no, 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 no. When they got to the song that the uh, the guy from Designing Women as the uh, Caterpillar, when he starts singing, I was just like, fuck this movie. Obligatory Jolly Caribbean sounding number. Yes. <laughs> I blame the Little Mermaid for that one. <laughs> Been in every shitty little made-for-video animation film ever since. Let's get a comedy peripheral character. Let's make it sound like the Caribbean. No. They had literally nothing to do with what was, well, nothing had anything to do with anything that was going on in that film, but even less. The one thing that I appreciate at the end, when Timmy comes back and people are holding up signs that says, like, Tim is number one, and you can hear somebody on the the audio track go, you were there when we needed you. Getting flashbacks for your... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it looks like this movie was put together for just a couple bucks. I mean, it is just so fucking cheap looking and just uh, so unwell thought out. Shame on the people behind this. And we had a remarkably good voice cast, at least. I mean, not the work that they did in the film, but, you know, the rest of their filmography. We have William H. Macy in this cast. Right. They don't have Aldo Ray, though. No, they do not have Aldo Ray. More's the pity. I think might have passed away by that point, but I mean, actually, his character did definitely. That's okay. They could have digitized it or something. <laughs> I'm just wondering why they didn't bring back Will Wheaton in order to play Martin. I mean, he played him when he was a kid. Or Shannon. Yeah. It was, it was, it was her character wasn't in it though, but they could have. She could have been the witch from Charm. There you are. Had her own magical powers. Or just bring her back to play the uh, older Mrs. Brisby, you know? Have some continuity. Oh, man, and Mrs. Brisby's looking so rough where they just, like, slap some gray paint on the top of her fur, and it's like, oh, you look nasty. You're right, they've got 
Peter McNichol doing the voiceover. You mentioned Machio. I mentioned Corman, Idol, Dom DeLuise. You've even got like Andrea Martin in here. I mean, it's just like, wow, this is, this is a cast. What are you doing with these people? I do think the film would have been improved if Peter McNichol did his narration in the same accent he used in Ghostbusters 2. But then again, I, I just always want Peter McNichol to do his performance from Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> I can't blame you. I don't think even that could have saved it, though, to be honest. I kind of also wish that Martin had been lobotomized at the end of the film, because he's, like, still a threat, you know? Like, if one of those helmets had fallen on his head and then, like, he lobotomized himself, because I'm just like, well, why are you trusting this guy now? Suddenly he's good? Uh, The power of friendship and love, I I don't know. Oh, (laughs) okay. So there's a third book out there, like I said, R.T. Margaret and the Rats of Nim. And rather than attempt to adapt that at all, apparently there's supposed to be a computer animated Rats of Nim reboot coming up. But they've been talking about that for the last four years. So we can hope that that's not happening because there's really just no reason to reboot this or remake it. No, I mean, the, the the original more than stands up throughout the years. But, you know, I'll allow the possibility that there's it's always possible for them to actually do something of quality. But it, if, even if it's terrible, we can just simply say, go watch the one from 1982. It's still readily available, and it still more than holds up. The The thing is, it's not like we're going to get closer to the source material and make things better. You know, it's not like, oh, well, they really did a poor adaptation. Because, yeah, we talked about some differences between the book and the movie, but I think there were all, like, pretty good differences. There wasn't anything where it was just like, oh, wow, I really wish they had that. I really wish that they had talked about how they found uh, a guy who used to make toys, and so he's got all of these little tools that are just the right size for the rats to use. That was actually a little bit of a stretch in the book, but <laughs> but like, had they found that in the movie, I think I would have been like, oh, come on. Well, and all of the changes to the narrative from novel to screen, they had a narrative utility, and they 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 were deliberate alterations that were made to refocus the story upon Mrs. Brisby, which I think was a very smart decision. I'm sure there might be people out there that uh, absolutely love the book and uh, think that it was an abomination the the alterations that were made, but for me, perhaps it's my my bias insofar that I saw the film before I read the book, but. They were satisfying changes, and the, both of the both uh, stories are satisfying in their own way. But I can't fault the film for the changes it made. I think the original film self-contained, though, isn't it? Even though you've got these little bits of mythology in the background, these little questions of well, I, I don't think you need to know. I don't think it needs to be expanded. It's all about one woman trying to save her family. So I don't think it really works as sequels because it's all about Mrs. Brisby and her struggle. So you get to part two and it's all about Timmy. We don't really know anything about Timmy. You just know he's a sick kid in the first part, but you don't really know anything about him. So it just, I don't know. It it doesn't work, I don't think, as a sequel thing. Whereas The Dark Crystal would work moving on because it's got more of a mythology attached and... We talked about that on that episode because the new Netflix one was coming up. Mm -hmm. With this, though, it's self-contained. It doesn't need to be a franchise. I totally agree. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 
at the edge of oblivion and that our planet has just edged closer to the brink of world war three on the brink of destruction enormous explosions in the distance have rocked the ground we're standing on the rapture has come we are receiving reports from all over the world people simply vanishing into thin air and the antichrist has arisen i am that i am can a struggling man oh and you can tell your god if he has something to say to me he knows where I live. And the woman he loves. God, please show me what to do. Survive the great tribulation. You worship him or you die. That's your choice. Cloud 10 Pictures proudly presents the groundbreaking drama Apocalypse. Welcome to an age of human enlightenment. Shot on six continents, Apocalypse been called outstanding and soul winning. And the soundtrack, featuring some of today's finest Christian artists, is praised as exceptional. Don't miss the movie that started it all. Apocalypse. Caught in the eye of the storm. Next week, we'll be back with a rather special show where I'm talking about a quartet of rapture films that are called the Apocalypse series. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and El Goro. El Goro, what's been happening with you, baby? Um, some interesting things. We've been still doing a lot of Patreon selections from over on Talk Without Rhythm, where my Patreon supporters were booking the various episodes. It's led me down some interesting territory, whether it's uh, talking about an interesting pairing of Scorsese's After Hours and Lynch's Blue Velvet, or down to some dipping into Cat's uh, 1930s territory with uh, a nice little uh, double feature of... Um, Frank Capra films, Ladies of Leisure, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So casting a wide net over there on Talk Without Rhythm. And Kat, what's keeping you ever so busy? The rest of this weekend, I'm going to be recording my commentary for the BFI's new upcoming release of Pierre Paolo Pasolini's Salo. So that's going to be a different change in gear. (laughs) Imagine so. (laughs) So this, so I took a break from watching sadistic films to come in and watch Nim for a bit. But Nim was more devastating. No, so I'm really looking forward to that because this is like top five bucket list for me. And it is such a, such an incredible film. It's just so. There's just so much to talk about, the history, Pasolini, even just analysing it. For a film that's like two hours or nearly two hours, I'm going to be stretched to get it all in, which is always good. And talking of more classic filmmakers, but not pre-code, I it was just announced Kino were doing a big Ida Lupino set, and I did a commentary, I recorded it quite a while ago now, actually, on The Bigamist, which is a very interesting film. Uh, so it's nice to see Ida Lupino being celebrated in such a fashion. I'm really excited about that. The one thing I found about Salo that I think Secret of Nim 2 really had was better songs. Now I want to see Pasolini's take on the Secret of Nim. I don't think the timelines line up, but uh, in, in, a, in an alternate world, we would have had that. The Rats of Nim would have been Nazi officials. I don't even want to think about I don't even want to mix those two things. Just, just don't. <laughs> But now it's in your head, and while whilst you're recording this thing and working on it, it will be lurking there, waiting to come out. Because we've always had, had the mention of bondage, you know, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Jeremy's backstory could have been a, no, I don't, no. 
Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Dream by night, wish by day. Love begins this way Loving starts when open hearts Touch and stay Sleep for now, dreaming's how Lovers' lives are planned Future songs and flying dreams Hand in hand Love, it seems, made flying dreams So hearts could soar Heaven sent these wings were meant To prove once more That love is the key Love is the key You and I touch the sky the eagle and the dove Nightingales, we keep our sails Filled with love And love, it seems, made flying dreams To bring you home to me Love, it seems, made flying dreams So hearts could soar Heaven sent these wings were meant To prove once more That love is the key Love is the key You and I touch the sky the eagle and the dove Nightingales, we keep our sails Filled with love Ever strong, our future song To sing it must be free Every part is from the heart And love is still the key and love, it seems, made flying dreams to bring you home to me. If 
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.